many. Just the word Christmas arouses a wave of emotions in the heart. In a society and culture that have in numerous respects discarded what is in truth the celebration of the Christ child's birth, there is a latent shadow of its significance still with us. The flickering candle in a frost-covered window, the harmonic voice of childish innocence in familiar songs, the smell of evergreen and ginger snaps, the sensation of warmth and love at family gatherings, all these mean something to us, something profound that many simply cannot quite put a finger on. A sense of unexplainable joy, a feeling of the highest and purest form of love, and an emotion of collective belonging are all experiences magnified by the Christmas season. But there are some for whom this time of year only magnifies more their sorrow than their joy. The stringing of lights and gifts under the tree and the arrangement of the Christmas dinner table are only stinging reminders that someone who was once there is now gone. An empty chair can trigger a flood of heartache. The missing laughter of a deceased loved one can be deafening to the grieving soul. The images of loved ones who are imprinted on our minds that for so many years were vitally linked to the holiday celebration, to be suddenly and then consistently removed is not only devastating, but can be yearly agonizing, causing a time of joy and hope to become days of sadness and despair. Late in his life, the great evangelist D.L. Moody was no stranger to heartache. His loss cut him to the depths of his soul with a grief that was so painful that it caused the flame of his own life to flicker and fade away. But in his last moments, God gave him the most astounding gift that anyone could ever receive. The gift of hope. I'm Ronnie Brown, and this is Forgotten. Even nearly 120 years after his death, the name D.L. Moody is still one of the most recognizable names in Christian history. The unlikely, ill-educated shoe clerk who was rejected as a candidate for church membership on his first attempt simply due to his biblical ignorance would become the catalyst of great revivals not only in the United States and Canada, but also in England, Scotland, and Ireland. But his earliest endeavors for the kingdom of God were on a much smaller scale. Not long after moving to Chicago in 1856, the newly converted 19-year-old committed himself not to sit idly on a church pew, but to be about the Lord's work in the only way he knew, bringing children to Sunday school. Back in Boston, where he was led to the Lord by his own Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball, Moody worked with his teacher to invite other young men to their Bible studies. At that time in Chicago, Sunday school mission stations were cropping up all over the city. Ambitious Dwight, 
decided to get as many children as he could to these Sunday schools. But not just any children, mind you. He went after the children that nobody wanted. After working with several Sunday school ventures around town, Moody realized that these schools were not reaching the lowest social and economic rungs of society. He set his sights on the most poverty-stricken region of the city of Chicago, the Sands. This neighborhood, also dubbed as Little Hell, was a place just north of the Chicago River along Lake Michigan's shore that most people avoided out of fear of being robbed or worse. Children from this area were often physically and sexually abused, as well as being malnourished, uneducated, and exposed to all manner of social woes. Without being forced to go to school, these kids ran the streets in constant mischief and foolery. This is the reason that many churches which made an attempt to reach these kids failed. Their rowdy and undisciplined behavior most often caused their first visit to be their last. These low-class children would not be forced into a middle-class mold. This burdened the heart of Moody, who was not much older than they, and had grown up in poverty without a father. In hopes of trying a different approach, he, with a handful of workers he had recruited to help him, started inviting children to an abandoned freight car, promising them a penny or a piece of maple sugar candy. When they arrived, the Sunday school hour was anything but traditional. Moody would have these restless and rowdy kids singing as loud as they could, standing and stomping their feet, singing, Stand up! Stand up for Jesus! This would be followed by five minutes or so of Bible reading and teaching. Then it was back to a game or a song where Crazy Moody, as he was called, would sing and romp about with them as the boxcar rocked with the religious tumult. These ragged children flocked to D.L. Moody's school, which quickly outgrew the abandoned boxcar and graduated to a vacant saloon. With no table or chairs, the children sat on the floor, which is what they were used to, and listened to young Moody read and teach the Bible. One man gave a stirring first-hand description of a visit to the class. Quote, The first meeting I ever saw him at was in an old shanty that had been abandoned by a saloon keeper. Mr. Moody had got a place to hold a meeting in at night. I went there a little late, and the first thing I saw was a man standing up with a few tallow candles around him holding a Negro boy and trying to read to him the story of the prodigal son and a great many of the words he could not make out and had to skip. I thought, if the Lord can ever use such an instrument as that for his honor and glory, it will astonish me, end quote. But use Moody, God did. His school grew to an astonishing 1,500 kids by the end of 1860. The attraction that Moody had on these children was amazing. Scores of children would walk right past other Sunday school mission works and go great distances out of their way to go to Moody School. The story is told that a young boy was stopped on his way to the Moody class and asked why he walked so far just to be with Moody. The boy replied, quote, because they love a fella over there, end quote. One of Dwight Moody's friends that witnessed him in his element among these kids said, quote, one important qualification for his work was an intense and almost womanly love for children. He never seemed happier than when in the midst of a crowd of boys and girls 
with whom he romped in the wildest fashion, beating them at their own sports and games until he had won their fullest confidence, end quote. of 1862, D.L. Moody had married Emma C. Revel. Born in London, England, her family migrated to Chicago in 1849 when she was about six years old. By 1857, she had committed her life to Jesus Christ and was a member of the First Baptist Church of Chicago. She first met D.L. Moody when he was asked to tell of his work among the poor children of the Sands in a Sunday school class in her church. She was moved by the work and often assisted Mr. Moody with occasional teaching. Their friendship and ministry budded into a romantic relationship leading to a blessed marriage. It wasn't long after that Dwight and Emma became parents. In 1864, their only daughter, Emma, was born. Five years later, in 1869, the Moody's welcomed their first son, William, into their family. And ten years later, another son, Paul, was born. If D.L. Moody's ministry among the poor children of Chicago was a reflection of his deep affection for children, then becoming a father only deepened that love. From the earliest days of his ministry, Dwight and Emma made it a priority to keep the family together. When the great evangelist would be invited for extended campaigns in various cities across the United States, lasting eight or nine months long, the family would travel with him and enroll in local schools for the duration. But there were occasions of necessity where Mr. Moody would be taken away for his gospel ministry for extended periods. Scores of letters exist from these occasions which are filled with words of his heartfelt love for and earnest desire to be with his children. He celebrated their accomplishments and gave them assignments to do around the home. At the same time, he never glorified himself or his ministry and never added a hint of self-pity for his extended absence. After returning from ministry in Europe in 1875, necessitated by the Great Chicago Fire of 71, where they lost pretty much everything but the clothes on their back, the Moody family settled in Northfield, Massachusetts, near Dwight's boyhood home. It is there that he and his family enjoyed farm life together. In between evangelistic campaigns and preaching tours, Family life was a priority, with picnics and games and rides to the beautiful countryside. And although his children did feel the sting of his departure for ministry, they were constantly assured of their father's love and focused attention in the midst of his demanding schedule. All of the moody children warmly remembered their childhood with deep love and appreciation for their father. His youngest son, Paul, wrote, quote, he seems to me, in retrospect, to be the most generous man I ever knew, end quote. And, quote, I cannot think of a more ideal companion, end quote.
It has often been said by new grandparents, quote, If I had known that having grandchildren was this much fun, I would have had them first, end quote. This was a fitting sentence to describe D.L. Moody's love for his grandchildren. With a tinge of resentment in his voice, his son Paul wrote, quote, When his children were young, he was too often away from home or too busy to extract from them all the pleasure he did from his grandchildren, end quote. By the time grandchildren entered the life of D.L. Moody, his schedule of necessity had scaled back somewhat and he was able to devote more time to them. Dwight and Emma's daughter, Emma, married Irish-born Arthur Percy Fitt in May of 1894. They were blessed with a daughter they named Emma in 1895. Oldest son, William, married Mary Whittle in August of 1894, and to them was born Irene in 1895 and Dwight, named after his grandfather, in 1897. Then in late 1899, they had another daughter they named Mary. D.L. Moody's grandchildren were the delight of his twilight years. Upon the birth of his first granddaughter, Irene, Moody was up early that morning in his buggy telling everyone he saw, quote, Do you know I have a granddaughter? I am taking a present over to her, end quote. Although infant Irene would not be able to eat any of the box of donuts that was his gift, it represented his doting grandfatherly affection. If that wasn't enough, his second trip over to see his newborn granddaughter was necessitated by bringing her the largest cauliflower his garden had produced that year. Moody would often write touching little letters to his grandchildren. One such letter to little Emma, when she was just one month old, is touching in its charm and tenderness. Quote, This is my first letter to my dear little grandchild. I wanted to get a letter to you before your first tooth. Hurry up and get them all before the hot weather comes on, for I will get some candy and you will want teeth to eat it. I want you to hurry up and grow so I can come early in the mornings and take you out riding when your father and mother are fast asleep and we will slip off over the river to see your cousin Irene and have some good times, end quote. While he was away for Emma's first birthday, Grandpa Moody wrote a letter the family treasured for years to come. In it, he talks about the night she was born and how they will go out riding when he returns. It closes with these touching lines, quote, And now, my dear Emma, I am praying for you that the Lord will watch over you day and night and keep you from all harm. You will never know how much your grandfather loves you. I shall be glad to get you in my arms again. End quote. This grandfather was true to his word concerning rides with his grandchildren. Several photos exist of Moody in his familiar wagon, pulled by his favorite horse, Nellie Gray, with grandchild in his lap. One such ride is preserved in a description of a family friend saying, quote, Mr. Moody has learned to perfection the art of being a grandparent. I saw him one morning driving with his little four-year-old granddaughter Irene into the yard of his house. The child had gone to sleep in the buggy, leaning against him. Rather than disturb her, he had the horse gently unharnished and taken away while they sat on. Presently, he too was overcome with sleep. End quote. His deep love for his grandchildren 
is the reason that the telegram from his son Will in November of 1898 was so devastating. As Dwight and Emma Moody were in a meeting in Colorado, they unexpectedly received word that their only grandson, D.L. Moody's namesake, Dwight, had tragically died. The communication bluntly said that the baby had died and that the funeral and burial would be within 24 hours. They were helplessly several days' journey away and could only pray that God would comfort their bewildered son and daughter-in-law as they themselves grieved the loss. Dwight wrote to Will and Mary, quote, I know Dwight is having a good time, and we should rejoice with him. What would mansions be without children? He was the last to come into our circle, and he is the first to go up there. So safe, so free from all the sorrow we are passing through. I thank God for such a life. It was nearly all smiles and sunshine. And what a glorified body he will have. And with what joy he will await your coming. God does not give us such strong love for each other for a few days or years. But it is going to last forever. And you will have your dear little man with you for ages and ages. And love will keep increasing. The master had need of him or he would not have called him. I cannot think of him as belonging to earth. The more I think of him, the more I think he was only sent to draw us closer to each other and up to the world of light and joy. Dear, dear little fellow, I have no doubt that when he saw the Savior, he smiled as he did when he saw you. And the word that keeps coming to mind is this, it is well with the child. Thank God Dwight is safe at home, and we will all of us see him soon. Your loving father, D.L. Moody, end quote. Their grief was only compounded when just a few months later, Will and Mary's firstborn, Irene, came down with pneumonia. It was persistent and unresponsive to any treatment from doctors. In the last, doctors diagnosed little Irene with consumption, a common name used for tuberculosis. Dwight and Emma were at her bedside to comfort and pray, as well as console their bewildered son and daughter-in-law. Although day by day she was weakening, she asked for a ride with her grandfather on August 14th, which Moody gladly did, stating that, quote, she never looked more beautiful, end quote. Just eight days later, she was gone. At her funeral, a heartbroken Moody said in a trembling voice, quote, Irene has finished her course. Her work was well wrought on earth. She has accomplished more than many in their three score and ten. We would not have her back, although hers was the sweetest voice I'd ever heard on earth. She never met me once since she was three months old until the last days of pain without a smile. But Christ has some service for her above. My life has been made much better by her ministry here on earth. She's made us all better. I thank God this morning for the hope of immortality. I know I shall see her in the morning, more beautiful in her resurrection glory than she was here. End quote. Although the birth of another granddaughter, Mary, gave some reprieve from the grief and sorrow suffered by the loss of two precious grandchildren, the emotional stress placed on an already ailing heart was too much. 
Moody had just started an evangelistic campaign in Kansas City, Missouri, and things seemed to be off to a great start. The crowds were large and very responsive to Moody's powerful messages. He was able to mask his increasingly weakening frame until Tuesday, when he finally saw a local physician. With a prescription that soothed the chest pains he was having, he continued on preaching six more times that week. But after Friday's message, November 16, 1899, doctors insisted that he return home immediately. He arrived at his Northfield home just a few days later and was able to climb the stairs to his second-floor bedroom unassisted. But once comfortably arranged in his own bed, his condition began to slowly worsen. Over the next few weeks, his breath would become more and more shortened as his strength waned. In the early morning hours of December 21st, 1899, Will, who was keeping vigil at his father's side, heard him say in slow and measured words, quote, Earth recedes and heaven opens for me, end quote. Thinking he was dreaming, Will attempted to wake his father, to which Moody replied, quote, No, this is no dream, Will. It is beautiful. It is like a trance. If this is death, it is sweet. There is no valley here. God is calling me, and I must go, end quote. Soon, a host of family members, along with doctors and nurses, stood around Moody's bed. As he was addressing them, he paused, and as if looking into another world, he said, quote, This is my triumph. This is my coronation day. I have been looking forward to it for many years, end quote. Then all of a sudden, his face lit up flush with love, quote, Dwight, Irene, I see the children's faces, end quote. After a few moments of restlessness and caring words for his family, he slipped quietly into the presence of his beloved Lord, and no doubt, into the embrace of his awaiting grandchildren in heaven. able to truly say what D.L. Moody saw in those closing moments of his earthly sojourn. Was his vision simply a hallucination brought about by the combination of chemical secretions in the brain, a brain slowly and increasingly deprived of oxygen from an ailing heart? Or was it indeed a divine glimpse into a heavenly existence? No one can honestly say. But what can be said and irrefutably known is that there is hope beyond this life. Death is not an end, but a beginning. And the hope that we can have of seeing once again those loved ones that have passed on before us is found only in one person. The person whose birth is celebrated in what for some is the most despairing and hopeless time of the year is the very one that is the centerpiece of hope hope for eternal life. He is Jesus, God's only begotten Son, born into this earth, suffering and dying on the cross, raised to new life on the third day. He is our hope, 
hope over the separation of sorrow and death. For as he said to his beloved friend that was bitterly grieving the death of her brother, so he says to us, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Forgotten is written and produced by me, Ronnie Brown. You can find out more about this show at ForgottenPodcast.com. I'm also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ForgottenPodcast. And as always, thanks for listening.